Lord, thank you for your breathed out word. And Lord, thank you for this book of Job, which for many of us is um, something new. Uh, Certainly, Lord, we have um, observed it from a distance. We may have read through it, but maybe not spent so much time in study of it. But Lord, we ask that as we continue to um, rightfully labor in this book, that we will be humble under what this book is teaching us. So Lord, give us, give us eyes to see and hearts to understand. What we know not, Lord, would you teach us? What we have not, Lord, would you give us? And what we are not, Lord, would you make us now? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. It is good for us to remind ourselves that what we have in the book of Job is an account of the child of God struggling to persevere through their suffering while holding on to what they know to be true about God and his ways. So the text before us is honest, it's raw, it's realistic. It shows Job struggling to understand his suffering. It shows Job fighting by faith to hope in God. It shows Job looking at the reality of his circumstances and slipping into despair. Those are realities. This is what life is like. It's a battle of faith-fueled hope in the midst of despair-filled reality. These two things somewhat competing against one another. What Job isn't showing us, though, is a a plastic form of Christianity that basically says, I have it all together, because he doesn't. And as if we're supposed to, to line up with this person that has it all together, we're not. A child of God is a person who will struggle and who will vacillate between faith and despair when they're looking at their circumstances, but there will be a wrestling match of seeking to be faithful to God and to to hear what he has to say. And so we relate to Job because we struggle in similar ways. We are ones who fight against unbelief like he has. We are ones who are overcome by the realities and the circumstances of life. We understand that. Maybe not to the same degree. Maybe we haven't been in the circumstance that Job has been in, but there's still struggle, there's still trials, there's still suffering that we have to face and endure. Now, Job has just finished listening to Eliphaz. And since Roman spoke for us last week, Job has been waiting two weeks to get to this point. It's been a long two weeks. But if you remember... As Eliphaz spoke in chapter 15, he wasn't speaking independently, which is what the other friends had been doing. Each of them kind of said their piece, and Job would respond. Now Eliphaz, in the second round of speeches, begins by speaking in such a way that he is is encompassing what his friends have said and what Job has also said, and he comes at him afresh. And if you remember what he says is this, he says two things, Job You're not behaving like a wise man, so listen to me. 
And then he says, Job, you're behaving more like a wicked man, so beware. That was chapter 15. And what we have before us is Job's response now to this persistent claim that his suffering is due to his sin. Now, we've seen this theme over and over and over again. And there's one phrase in our text that sums up what Job is going through at this point in time. Look, if you would, please, at chapter 16 and verse 7, where Job basically says this, God, I am worn out. The struggle, the suffering, the trial has gone on and on and on. It's been physical, it's been emotional, it's been familial, it's been spiritual, it's been relational. And Job is at the end. He's ready to throw in the towel. And we who have been studying this book and reading this book know something that Job doesn't know at this point in time. That we are in chapter 16 and 17. And the book doesn't end until chapter 42. So he is nowhere near the end. He still has a long way to go. And so how is he going to get there? How does, he, how does he move on in the midst of this onslaught of consistent bad counsel from his friends and just the endurance of what he's going through? Now, I know that there's a number of you here that are present who are going through ongoing trial after trial, waves of struggle that come after waves of other struggle. And your struggle may not be the same as Job's, but it is your trial, it is your struggle, it is your suffering. And in your heart, even when you're putting on a good face, you're saying to God, God, I am worn out God, when will this end? God, this is too hard. And you're fighting to be faithful. And so you keep your head in the storm, facing the storm, and you press on. But how do you do that? Job is going to give us some insight in this text. So how are we to press on in our trials and suffering? What can we learn from Job that will keep us moving in the right direction and having our focus where it needs to be. Today, we're going to be looking at persevering in the midst of suffering. Persevering, pressing on, keeping on going, enduring, facing the onslaught. How do you do that? And how do you do that when you, are, you feel you're at the end of your rope? How do you do that when you feel like you're, it's time to throw in the towel? Now, you don't know how long this journey is going to be. Job doesn't, but we know. It's a lot more dialogue to take place. It's a lot more struggle before him. And friends, we need to learn. So this morning, let's begin by looking at this particular text. There's going to be three sections of our sermon this morning. There's going to be the section that we deal with the text. There's going to be a section that we reflect on the text. And there's going to be a section that we then interact with. How does this relate to Christ? So we want to, first of all, look at the struggle for perseverance. And that's what this chapter is about. And it falls into five sections. First of all, uh, the, the first section has to do with his friends. And basically, he's going to say, these are my miserable friends. Job struggled for perseverance. 
has been difficult in large part to the unhelpful counsel of his friends. And notice how he describes it in verses 2 and 3. I've heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall windy words have an end? Or what provokes you, that's a plural there, that you answer? In other words, he's saying this. I've heard a lot of things in my life, but you win the prize for being the three worst comforters a friend could ever have. In all seriousness, when will you stop with your empty and unhelpful advice? And what evil is moving in your heart so that you speak to me the the way that you do? And why are you so irritated with me? Now, if the tables were turned, Job imagines that it would be easy to be one of these miserable comforters. All we would have to do is string some words together against them. He'd just simply have to shake his head at them. But Job anticipates that he would have another agenda. He would have another approach, one that would be gentle, helpful, edifying, that would assuage their pain. Look at verse 5. I could strengthen you with my mouth, and the solace of my lips would assuage your pain. Now, the reality is in his present condition, it really doesn't matter what Job is saying. His pain is not going away. His pain is still there. It remains, and the suffering continues. And verse 6 says, if I speak, my pain is not assuaged. But he gives us a little insight here, doesn't he? See, Job now knows and he understands what it means to suffer. And what he has expressed in these past few verses, look at verse 4, I also could speak as you do if I were in, in my place. I could join words together against you and shake my head at you. He understands what it's like to be on the receiving end now. And he can give some counsel to us. He understands the power of words that either cause great harm or words that can be medicine that gives strength and perspective. And friends, it's a reminder to us to be very patient with those who are suffering and grieving. Very, very patient. Not to be too pushy to paint a picture where everything makes sense and where their suffering seems to fit nicely into a theological system, that person may not be ready for that yet. And so don't be afraid of your friends grieving. I think sometimes we are. You know, they're they're grieving. We're not sure exactly what to do, but we don't want to do nothing. We don't want to sit around for seven days. We want to we want to jump in and we want to say something, and we jump in and we say something. What we say ends up not being helpful. Just because we're trying to fill the void, we shouldn't be filling the void. Or maybe because they're ranting in the midst of their grief, and we want to counter it. It's like let grief proceed. And use your words gently to encourage. It's great wisdom here, even from Job. So he's reflecting now, my miserable friends. But notice also there is this adversarial God of his. This is verses 7 through 17. 
He was enduring the miserable counsel of his friends, but now he has to endure what he had called previously the arrows of the Almighty, the the ways in which God was inflicting the suffering on him. God here is described as his adversary, his enemy. Why else would suffering come without cause? Notice the words that he uses to describe his present condition. We began our time with this, but there's more words there. Worn out made desolate. This is verses 7 and 8. Shriveled up, lean. This is, this is, these are words that describe what it's like to be under the arrows of the Almighty. He's completely exhausted. He is ready to give up. But now Job peppers us with five images that describe what God has been doing to him in his wrath. First image is the fact that God is like a wild animal, verses 9 and 10. He has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. Just think through what's being said in these two verses. You can see the image of a wild animal stalking his prey, piercing him with a sharp look and murderous intent, gnashing his teeth in anticipation of the kill tearing him apart as a lion or a, or a wolf tears its prey, or, or gaping his mouth, ready to devour Job. It's quite an image. And this is God. This is how he's describing God. And then those God is using to carry out his wrath take advantage of Job, and they strike him insolently on the cheek and surround him like a pack of wolves. You get the picture here. This is a wild animal pursuing its prey. Secondly, he's like a traitor. Verse 11 says, God gives me up to the ungodly. That's just like betraying him. Gives him up into the hands of those who scorn. And he's like a wrestler. You know, it's like, you know, I was having a nice day. The sun was shining. The birds were singing. And God came around me and he gave me a headlock. And he wrestled me to the ground. And here I am, trying to pick up the pieces. Then he's like an archer. He set me up as his target. His archers surround me. Just get the picture here. You know, Job's running around. He's got a big target on his back. There he is. Go get him. And all of these people now are shooting arrows at him. This is is how he's perceiving things. And he's like a swordsman. This is pretty gruesome stuff here. He slashes open my kidneys and does not spare. Well, there's a nice thought. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with breach upon breach. He runs upon me like a warrior. Listen, Eliphaz has accused Job of being like a a soldier running stubbornly against God with a thickly bossed shield. That was chapter 15, verse 26. But the reality is that God is the one who's running relentlessly against Job. It's God who is incessant in his attacks against Job. And every one of Job's protections has been breached. That's what verse 14 says. Now, this is figurative language. It's not literally that God is is an animal doing these things to me. He's using figurative language to say, this is how God is treating me. He is my adversary. He is against me. 
And this is what happens when you start to think about what is taking place in your life when you're going through suffering. God, why are you doing this to me, right? That's what he's saying here. Yet in all of this affliction from God, Job continues to maintain a clear conscience. Now, let's read verses 15 through 17. It's a rather pathetic picture, but get what he's saying. I have sewed sackcloth on my skin, and I've laid my strength in in the dust. In other words, because my skin is in such a bad condition, I have sewed sackcloth on it. He says, my face is red with weeping, and on my eyelids is deep darkness. Verse 15, I didn't read the last part. I've laid my, my strength in the dust. It's a picture of a like a, a, a an oxen who's who's so exhausted they've fallen over and their head is just laying in the dust. And they, they have no you see them in the desert. There they are, bones and all. That's the picture here. Verse 17, although there is no violence in my hands and my prayer is pure. So all these things are happening, and yet in the midst of all of them, we have verse 17. And two things are true here. And catch this. So this is key. There is no violence in Job's hands. He has not allowed his grief to turn him to acts of violence. That's really important. It's actually really, really helpful. And you'll see why later on in the sermon. And then his prayer is pure. He is coming to God when he prays with genuine concern. He's not selfishly praying. His hands are clean. His, his, his heart is pure, that's what the psalmist would say. And so this is a, a reaffirmation that Job knows of no unconfessed or unforgiven sin in his life that would have caused his suffering. It's not saying that Job is sinless. It's saying that Job recognizes that he is forgiven. It's just that with all these things happening to him, he still has this attitude and approach and can say this about himself. So my, my, my friends, my miserable friends, my adversarial God doesn't look too good at this point, does it? And yet something happens now in Job's response where he begins to fight his way to something that is wonderful and beautiful. And here's what we have Um, Job focusing now on his heavenly witness. He's climbing out of this lament. And and he knows he's innocent, and he has a clear conscience, and he appeals to heaven for justice. Verse 18, O earth, cover not my blood, and let my cry find no resting place. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. I just think about those words. His cry for the earth to not cover his blood is an echo of God's words to Cain when he murdered his brother Abel. It says there, Genesis 4.10, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And Job is saying, allow my blood to cry out. In other words, Abel, the innocent one, is dead, but his blood cried out for vindication and justice. And Job is now looking intently into heaven, and he can see his witness testifying on his behalf. His cry is for justice, and his cry has not fallen on deaf ears, is what he's saying. He is a witness. He is an advocate for him who knows that Job is innocent, who will testify that uh, that truth before the judge. And so he's saying, God, don't allow that cry to be covered. 
Well, who is this witness? Well, certainly it is God who brings justice and avenges Abel's death in chapter in, in Genesis 4. In Isaiah 26, verse 21, just listen to what we have recorded there. For behold, the Lord is coming out uh, from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its slain. Again, this is the Lord. It's the Lord that uncovers the cry of innocent blood and calls for this, this justice. This is none other, and hear this, than Job appealing to God to be a witness against God. Just think through that. God appealing to God on behalf of one of God's children. Now, some cogs should be working in your head here to understand what's going on. Because there is one who appeals against God or before God, and that person is the Son of God who stands and makes an appeal to the Father, right, on behalf of his children. Okay, you get the picture here. So, so Job is, with, without really understanding the full-blown nature of the, the coming Messiah, has his theology in a place that he understands he has a witness in heaven who is advocating for him against even the one who is bringing the arrows of his affliction. So Job's friends scorn him. And so he pours out tears to God. This is verses 20 and following. And appeals to, to him, to God, to argue his case as a son of man does with his neighbor. In other words, he's saying he is appealing for a witness who will argue his case before God as an equal. And this witness is God testifying on God's behalf against God. And we'll get back to that in a little bit, but it's pretty powerful, isn't it? In the midst of his suffering, what is he doing? He recognizes that he has this witness in heaven who will testify of his innocence, who will appeal for his vindication. And then we move on to what is I'm calling his impending death as he's reflecting. So he, he's kind of moved out of his friends who are miserable. He, he's thought about how God is, is afflicting him and is adversarial towards him. He sees his witness in heaven. But, but again, the realities of life are before him. His circumstances are before him. He has a wonderful hope and a heavenly witness. But now there is this tension. There's this tension between hope and between death. And now, as he looks at his circumstances, his wonderful hope is replaced with the imminence of his death. Look at verse 1 and verse 13 through 16. They remind us of the fact that the graveyard is ready for me. That's what he's saying. The graveyard, death, is right before me. And then verses 13 through 16, Sheol is all he has to look forward to. So you almost have these bookends here helping us understand that, that what's before him now, the reality is all he can see is the next step is death. And it affects his desire for life because his spirit is broken, we're told here, and his days are being cut short. And so we see now that his spirit 
is broken. Verse 1, my spirit is broken. My days are extinct. The graveyard is ready for me. So why is Job's spirit broken? Why does he think that his days are numbered and the graveyard is, be, is ready for him? Well, there's four things that are stated here. First of all, he is mocked. Verse 2, surely there are mockers about me and my eye dwells on their provocations. So he sees these mockers with their provocations, probably his friends and maybe even beyond that, those who are looking on his demise. And in this, this language of lament, their mockery is that they reject Job's ongoing claim to righteousness before God. Not only that, he is abandoned. Where he says, lay down a pledge for me with you. Who is there who will put up security for me? Now, just think through this. To lay down a pledge basically means I am providing security for someone. I am coming to stand with someone. I am there to guarantee someone's well-being. And, and understand the circumstances that Job is in. He was a wealthy man. He had a lot of resources, but now everything has been taken away. Now, sometimes, you know, when we make a promise, you know, I promise this on my mother's life. You understand what you're saying there. You're making a pledge. You're saying what you're saying based on the security of something that you love or someone that you love. Or you may say, you know, I, you know I'll give you $1,000 if this isn't true, right? So that's that kind of thing. Job has nothing. His point is, I have no ability to actually make the statement and to confirm it and affirm it with any kind of financial or circumstantial um, resources to, to reinforce that claim. I have nothing. I am alone. There's no one to lay down a pledge for me. In fact, in Genesis 43, verse 9, you may remember the story of Joseph and his brothers in Egypt, and he eventually is in Egypt, and in that story... We find Judah saying to Jacob about Benjamin, I will be a pledge for his safety. In other words, I will be the one who will lose my life to make sure that what you're asking about my brother will actually take place. It's a pledge. And he's saying, I'm alone. And then he comes at them with a proverb. And it's a proverb that basically says, there's a sense in which what you're doing is exploiting me. Verse 5, he who informs against his friends to get a share of their prosperity, the eyes of his children will fail. You know, there's some families who are really, really saddened when their parents die. And there are some families who are excited. because they can't wait for the windfall. And that's what this proverb is about, you know. These people who are looking around, they're waiting for what they can get out of another person's demise. And even friends who were once friends who see the value of things there can be affected by that. And then finally in verse 6, he is disgraced. He has made me a byword of the peoples, and I am one before whom men spit. Well, isn't that lovely? The people spit before you when you're walking down the street. It'd be a pretty horrible thing, but people have done that to other people. Now, what is this, this expression? What is a byword? 
A byword is a word that is used to encompass, encompass someone's activity or behavior. So for example, when you think of a serpent, you think of the word deceit. They're almost like equal. So serpent is a byword for deceit. Or if I mention Beverly Hills or Rodeo Drive, you think of celebrities and luxury living, all right? So these are bywords for certain things. If I say Hitler or Nazi, you think of evil atrocities against humanity. So Nazism or, or acting like Hitler is a byword for that kind of behavior. And what, what's being said here is this, that he has made me a byword of the peoples. In other words, he is a byword by virtue of his disgrace because he is suffering because of his sin. Here is a model. Here is an example of what happens to someone when they sin and they live with the consequences and the judgment of their sin. Look at him. There's Job. And with that reputation, the mockers spit on him. You person, you commit your sin. You're, you have to live with the consequences of your sin, buddy. See, it's that kind of attitude. He says, my eye has grown dim from vexation, and all my members are like a shadow. This is, this is again, I am just worn out. Now, what's worth noting is that in the end, and I do not mean the end of the story. I mean, in the end, as it relates to Scripture, Job is not a byword for disgrace or impenitence, but for patience. Or as the ESV would say, for steadfastness. He is an example of one who endured such horrible trial and still was faithful to God. Vindication has been declared. And the byword of disgrace has been with the byword of faithfulness. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, James says, 5.11. Absolutely. Now, then it ends up with this righteous result. So he's moving now as he's thinking about his impending death. A broken spirit now moves to a righteous resolve. Notice what he says about the upright and the innocent. He says, they're appalled at the injustice against me. They are stirred up against the godless. But still, even if Job is being treated unjustly, the righteous and those who have clean hands both hold their way and they grow stronger and stronger. They keep they're, they're focused where it needs to be. And as a result of even having to endure the suffering, they grow stronger and stronger and stronger. In other words, Job is saying, in the face of injustice, I will cling more firmly to my innocence. And I will grow stronger and stronger in putting my hope in God for my vindication. In other words, a child of God who is, who is functioning with the right perspective sees the, the suffering and the endurance that they have to experience as a means of becoming more and more like what God wants them to be. They're growing. They're determined. They're certain. And Job is not alone in this kind of struggle. Turn in your Bibles to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 
The Apostle Paul, even in writing to the Corinthians, had to kind of set the stage for them. And he has been accused of a lot of things, and he deals with that right away in this book, in chapter 4. 1 Corinthians 4 and, and verse 3 through 5. And listen to what it says. But with me, this is Paul talking now, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. So you don't have the right to make an accusation against me. No one else really does. In fact, I don't even have that right. Verse 4, for I am not aware of anything against myself. In other words, there's no sin that I've committed, but I am not thereby acquitted. In other words, it doesn't matter my assessment. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive the commendation from God. You see what he's saying? The ultimate person who determines my righteousness is not you, and it's not even me. It's God. And I'm going to anchor myself to him. So, miserable friends, an adversarial God, heavenly witness, his impending death, all leads back now to this despairing hope, this despairing hope. My days are past. My plans are broken off. The desires of my heart. He recognizes here that his days are past that his life, his experiences now, his plans and his desires, everything has been turned upside down, inside out. It's all in the past now. And he doesn't believe what his friends have been saying about him, that out of this darkness there will be light, that, that, that this night of suffering will end in the light of day. Job's friends come and they promise a better day if Job will simply admit his sinfulness. And we know that a better day does come to Job. But it doesn't come to Job along the same path that his friends are saying that this better day will come. They're saying, this will come if you admit your sin and just do these moral things. Job's better day comes because of something he doesn't deserve. Hear this. Job doesn't deserve the suffering he's experiencing, although his friends might think that he does. And Job doesn't deserve the blessing he will ultimately receive. His blessing comes not because Job pressed the right buttons. It comes about out of the kindness and the grace of God. But at present, all that Job can see is the prospect of death. And that means that his hope, the hope of being vindicated is fading fast. And so Job should just embrace the prospect of death. And that's what we have here, beginning at verses 13 through the end, where Sheol, the grave, is his home, where darkness is his bed where the pit is his father and the worm is his mother and his sister. That's where I can just nestle in and finally settle down. This is my only hope and comfort is the grave. And sometimes when people are suffering, that is what they're thinking. 
They're just longing for it to stop and to be settled in the grave. Friends, this is Job's response to Eliphaz. This is a struggle. But in the midst of the struggle, this is who you are. This is what God has been doing. I see my witness. I struggle. I still struggle with the prospect of death, but my my hope is disappearing. It's kind of a raw, real picture, isn't it? Now, as we look at this struggle for perseverance, we want to move now and reflect on the strategy for perseverance. And what we want to do here is kind of glean from the words and actions of Job that will reveal for us a strategy for perseverance in the face of suffering. And there's three things, three things that I have mentioned before, but three things I think need to be reinforced here to help us understand how then do we press on. It's one thing to say, how do we face it afresh, but now how do you press on having had to endure so much? Well, first of all, we must have a healthy view of God. Job's theology of suffering is rooted in his understanding of who God is and how he works in the affairs of man. You've heard me say it time and time again, and I'm not afraid to say it again because it's so important for us, that having a healthy theology of suffering is crucial before your suffering begins. Because without it, you'll be tossed to and fro by the wind of man's wisdom, and as such, the voice of Scripture will be hard to hear and embrace. And a healthy view of scripture begins, sorry, a healthy view of suffering begins with a healthy view of God. And see, one of the problems is that Job's friends had a view of God, but it wasn't an accurate view of God. In many ways, they said some things that were true about God, but they misunderstood God's ways. And when we have, a, we have a, a distortion of our understanding of who God is, we'll have a distortion of, of understanding of how he works. So we must seek to know who God is, his attributes and his character. Then we seek to know how uh, God actually works in the affairs of man. Because, listen, God's character is the, is the might want to say, the, the, the means by which his actions bear fruit. When you and I say something like, you know, you might watch something on TV where, you know, they're interviewing someone and maybe it's a murder or something like that. And they're like, you know, could, could your friend, you know, have committed murder? And the person would say, oh, no, there's nothing in them that would do that, right? What, what are they saying? This person's character wouldn't produce that kind of behavior. When we understand who God is, we understand what God will not do and what he must do. So someone might say, erroneously, if God is loving, how could he allow suffering into this world? The problem with that statement is you're only looking at one attribute. You're not recognizing the fact that God is just, or God actually must exercise justice in the form of wrath. Okay, So it's it's a distorted view. And so we'll tend then with that kind of view to get angry at God or to be bitter or or to blame God for our circumstances. 
So what we need to do is we need to have a healthy view of God to see his character for who he is. And then once we understand that, it makes much more sense about how God works in the affairs of this world. That's why it's really good, friends, on a personal level to read a book like Arthur Pink's The Attributes of God or A.W. Tozer's The Knowledge of the Holy. It's good to understand who God is, what what makes him who he is, what are his attributes, what do they mean? Because when you embrace yourself and and you, you, you saturate yourself with that, then things become clearer in your understanding of how God works. And so even though Job is struggling to understand his suffering and his grief-filled rants, he is reining all of that in by what he knows to be true about God, right? We see see him ranting a lot, right? And maybe that brings comfort to you because maybe you cry out to God a lot. But those laments, those cries, that ranting is reined in by what he knows to be true about who God is. And so he's still anchored to God. He still turns to God. God is his frame of reference for his life and his struggle and his sorrow. It is a God-centeredness in the midst of suffering. And friends, I don't know about you, but when, when suffering begins to take place in my life, it is my tendency to focus on the fact that I'm hurting or I've been wronged I become the center of my attention, and my thoughts are about me. I'm the victim. I want affirmation. I want attention. I want assurance. I want to be made to feel better. Right? It's natural. But God wants us to rise up out of that and to see him, to focus on who he is and what he's doing. So the lesson here is this. It isn't that Job is clinging to God in his suffering, although he should be doing that. It is that Job knows that God has been and continues to cling to Job, and he hasn't let go. See, if we all we just say, I, I must cling to God, I must cling to him, I must cling to him. When you understand who God is, your clinging is somewhat insignificant. It's good, but it's somewhat insignificant because it is God who is clinging onto his children. That is powerful because your clinging can stop. God's doesn't. A healthy view of God. And we read about something similar in the book of 1 Peter. And he's writing his, his letter to this group of suffering Christians. They're being grieved by various kinds of trials, we're told. They're going through the mill of suffering. And yet he says to them, in the midst of the furnace of affliction, the following, who by God's power are being guarded or kept through faith, for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. They're being guarded. They're being kept. I mentioned this gentleman uh, just a few minutes ago, um, pastor by the name of Arthur Pink. Um, Great theologian, um, did many uh, good things many years ago, written some great resources. Um, But he also was kind of a, a gruff individual. And he was uh, at an island off the coast of Scotland, the Isle of Lewis. And he would take his daily walk down to the harbor to get some fish for, for dinner. And, and as he's walking by, one of the 
local fishermen recognized him and wanted to kind of greet him and say hello. And he says in their own Scottish way, how are you keeping today, Mr. Pink? And Mr. Pink responded without looking at this man and said, not keeping, but kept. Now, it may have been kind of a cold response, but his theology was right. It wasn't a matter of how are you keeping, it's more a matter of the fact that I am being kept by God. You see, friends, that's, that's a perspective that we need to have. He's not keeping himself. Job isn't. We aren't. But we are being kept by God. Secondly, we not only see a healthy view of God, but we also see a confidence in prayer. Have you noticed that throughout Job's struggle, he has been growing in his confidence to approach God and to cry out to him for help? Do you remember, remember how he was saying, can a man do this? How can a man do this? And now he's just doing it, right? He wants to, to cry out to God, to share his confusion, to express his pain, to question God's actions, to find comfort or hope and assurance. And if you look at chapter 17, verses 1 through 5, which we've looked at a little bit already, you'll see that, that Job is pouring out his suffering to God. He is at rock bottom. The graveyard is ready for him, he says. But in the middle of his whimpering cries of mocking and abandonment and exploitation and shame, there's a prayer for God to come to his aid. There are two requests in this prayer. Verse 3 and verse 4, he says, lay down a pledge for me. Lay down a pledge for me. In other words, this is a courtroom scene, and he's saying, God, would you come and stand by me? Job knows that he's innocent, but he has nothing of value left in his resources to make his claim, and so he's calling on God to be his pledge. He's calling on God to provide the resources to support his cries of integrity. In other words, Job is saying, I'm innocent, and if I had money, houses, and lands, I would put them up as security to show you how serious I am in my certainty. And so he's calling on God to act on his behalf. And isn't it interesting that even in this exchange, Job is moving from saying in his grief, God is the one who is afflicting me, he is my adversary, but now he says, God put down a pledge in support of my innocence, moving from being an adversary to an advocate. Just even in that prayer. And then he says, don't let my friends triumph. <laughs> See, he's praying confidently. And friends, there's a need for us. I think sometimes when we're going through trial and suffering, and maybe if things don't change, we kind of can give up. Because in our you know, contemporary world, it's not working. As if praying to God is a button I push to change my circumstances, right? We get that thinking. But maybe praying to God is actually the means by which you are pressing on in the midst of your suffering. Not that the suffering ends, but now you have a greater perspective in your suffering. So we move then from a healthy view of God, confidence in prayer. And here's the third one, and it is an assurance in the gospel, an assurance of who you are. We put it this way, we are to be gospel-centered. And I realize in Christendom now that is like a buzzword, right? 
You know, everyone's gospel-centered. You have gospel-centered hats. You have gospel-centered golf clubs. You have gospel-centered. I mean, it's just slapped everywhere, and we lose its meaning. And simply what, what we're, I'm emphasizing here it, it is a need for us to see that it is Christ who pleads our case in the courtroom of heaven. Eliphaz is right when he asks the question in chapter 15 in verses 14 and following. He says this, What is man that he can be pure? Or who, has, who is born of a woman that he can be righteous? No one. Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones and, in, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less one who is abominable and corrupt, a man who drinks injustice like water. There is no one that can stand before God except for one, and his name is Christ. You see, Eliphaz may, may, may not quite have his understanding of the character of God right, but he certainly grasps the reality of the plight of man. He is prone to exchange the truth of God for a lie. And as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 3, there is none righteous, not even one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So all of us are in big trouble and our only hope is that one who understands not only our suffering, but did something about that. So Job recognizes that the big issue is not his suffering. The bigger issue is his sinfulness. So chapter 16, verses 19 again and following. Even now, behold, my witnesses in heaven... And he who testifies for me is on high. My friends score me. My eye pours out tears to God. That would argue the case of man with God as a son of man does with his neighbor. See, we are now, because of Christ, made anew. We are in Christ. Christ is in us. And as a result, he is our advocate who is standing before God, making his, his claims and his defense for us. And so when we are going through suffering, one of the things that we need to remind ourselves of is the fact that we are his, that our identity is in Christ and what he thinks and not in what others think. Now, friends, these are just three basic truths, but they're important truths, friends. Do you know God? And I realize it's a lifelong thing and you'll never reach the full understanding of who God is, but get to know him? Do you come boldly to the throne of grace with your concerns, your heart, your struggle? Do you remind yourself of who you actually are in Christ? And Job is just helping us say, these three things are important. In all of this, you will be able to endure. Now let's finish. Having looked at the struggle for perseverance and the strategy for perseverance. Let's look now briefly at the Savior who persevered. See, this text is full of echoes of Christ. As he faced death and as he endured the wrath of the Father, or if you want to put it this way, the arrows of the Father. We'll just highlight them. Isn't it interesting that while Jesus is on the cross, while he is suffering, while he is in agony, he pauses to say a word for the care of his mother. 
in his suffering, he is one who's bringing comfort. (laughs) And there's another man just a few feet from Jesus who's hanging on the cross, a thief there justly because of his sins. And while Jesus is suffering in agony himself, he is one who is comforting, just like Job in his suffering would say, this is what I would do. And he comforts this thief and encourages him to believe and gives him these words, today you will be be with me where? In paradise. My friends, there's something about this that, that our whole world is turned upside down when it's not just about us. That even in the midst of our suffering, God has a purpose for us being there and we can be comforters from the position of our suffering. And even Jesus is an example of that. Secondly, Jesus persevered in the face of self-righteous men. Right? When Jesus is hanging on the cross, people are laughing at him. They're mocking him. They're scorning him. They're wagging their heads. The crowd earlier shouted, crucify him, crucify him. The ruler said, save others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. You know, that's not saying, we believe you. Now do it. That was said in mockery. That was a challenge. <laughs> you think you're the son of God. Save yourself. The soldier said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. See, just like Job, who endured the scorn and the mockery, Jesus also had to endure the same kinds of things. These are just echoes. These are shadows of Christ. Third, he persevered under the hateful wrath of God. Yes, I chose those words carefully. Wrath is not wrath unless it is just, unless it is truly hateful. Well, what is it that God hates? Well, one of the things God hates is sin. And that wrath is poured out against sin. And who is the one who is bearing our sin? It is Jesus who bears our sin. God is pouring out his wrath on his son. He's the object of the fiercest arrows of the Almighty. Now, let me just take you to Isaiah 53. Now, having having just looked through this chapter, I just want you to notice some of the things that are said here about what God is now doing to his son. Isaiah 53, beginning at verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet 
He opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth, but oppression and judgment or by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And for his generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. You hear the echoes there? No violence, no deceit. He was pure. Yet, verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Stop complaining that God is doing this to you. Because God the Father was doing this to his son on your behalf. We can say, we read Job, we're like, man, he, he is enduring all these arrows of affliction from Almighty God. Yes, and even in a greater way was Jesus, the object of the Father's wrath. He persevered under that hateful wrath of God. Next, he persevered while clearly innocent. One of the things I think is bound up in John the Baptist's statement introducing Jesus is, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, in order to be a Lamb of God that takes away sin, what kind of Lamb do you have to be? Pure, unspotless. Or pure, spotless Lamb, I should say. He's innocent. And even practically speaking, when Jesus is brought before Pilate and he's interacted with Pilate, Pilate turns around and he says what? I find no fault in him. Job claims he's innocent. We know he's innocent. He's enduring the suffering. He's persevering while clearly innocent, just like Jesus is. And then Jesus ultimately persevered with hope. You say, what do you mean there? Well, Jesus knew why he had come. And the Gospels were told that he set his face toward Jerusalem. He knew that he was going to suffer. He knew he was going to die on a cross. But more importantly, that he knew what he had come to do. And that's why the book of Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 reminds us about this. It says, who, talking about Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, what? Endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. His hope was his joy to fulfill the plan of the Godhead in providing the way of entry the way of reconciliation, the way that the payment needed to be made, a redeemer has come in the person of Jesus Christ. And just let me close all of this now just with a brief statement here. During times of suffering, we must all do all we can to hold on to God. That is true. But the real comfort for us is that in spite of our efforts to hold on to God, a holding that will fail 
God is always holding on to us, and he will never let us go. And that's why this verse is so precious to us. It's just one of a number. He, that is Christ, who began a good work in you, may, could, might. Something powerful about this word, will will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Friends, justice for you, vindication for you, the answers that you wish you would have may not be realized here, but one day when he brings you into his presence in the throne room of God, he will look at you as his child and say, listen, I I carried you all the way through this. And here's why I did this. Let me show you. See, we don't have the privilege of that. But I think when we stand before God, he will make things clear to the degree that we need to understand it. And we will praise him all the more because he puts our life and our struggles and our suffering into perspective. He will who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He is holding on to you, my dear friend. Now hold on to him, but know that he is holding on to you. And that is a security that we all need. Lord, help us today. We are people who endure ongoing suffering. And we want to persevere. And for most of us, we have no idea what it's like to be Job. We don't even come close to that. And yet, we do need to be reminded of some strategies, Lord, to help us persevere. Lord, help us to take advantage of the word of God that we have, to know you, to see you, to understand you. But not only that, having understood you better, that we would understand your ways even more. Lord, help us to, to not be hindered in coming to you in prayer. Lord, you want to hear the cries of our hearts. Lord, even if they're messy, you want to hear them. And Lord, help us to be reminded that because we are in Christ, because we are part of your family, that we are yours, that we are kept by you. Let us reflect the example of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we we may need this now. We may need this in a month. We may need it in a year. But Lord, we need it. We need this reminder. Help us, Lord, to, to keep our eyes focused on what it is that you seek to do through our lives for your glory. In your precious name, amen.